Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Colorado Ballot Initiative Number 3 seeks to repeal the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, more commonly known in Colorado as Tabor. Brownstein shareholders Sarah Mercer and Associate David Meshke provide background on the initiative, an overview of the ballot initiative process, and insight on what could happen now that the initiative has been appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court. Welcome to another episode of the Brownstein podcast series. David, thanks for being here with me. My pleasure, Sarah. I'm really excited to, to talk with you today about ballot initiatives. You and I head up our firm's uh, ballot initiative uh, work here and do our, you know, really in charge of our ballot initiative tracker that we have on our website. And so, you know, I'm really excited to talk about a ballot initiative that you and I have been following for the last several months, initiative number three. David, can you tell us a little bit about what that initiative is and does? Sure. And and for everybody's knowledge right now, there are over 100 ballot initiatives that have been submitted to legislative council at this point, and we're, we're talking about number three. So it's, it's a ballot initiative that was filed very early in the process. And this initiative has to do with TABOR, which uh, I'm sure very many people are familiar with. TABOR is short for the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And the initiative is pretty simple. It wants to repeal TABOR. Yeah, so uh, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, that has, you know, I sort of think of it as having two primary components. One is, and this was passed by the voters back in 1991, took effect in 1992. So we in Colorado have been living with it for a long time. But the two components that I really think of it as having are, the first is prohibiting any tax increase from being uh, levied by any level of government, so state government or any local government, without voter approval. Uh, that's, I think, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights component. I think that's what most people think of it when they think about Tabor. The second component, though, is to limit the growth of government. And there's two components to that. One is that the government revenues that they can keep can only grow by a certain formula that's set out in Tabor. That's a combination of the population uh, and inflation. And then they can only spend up to that amount. And anything that's collected over that number has to be refunded back to the taxpayers. So what does this do? And why are the proponents here seeking to repeal Tabor, David? Well, I'm not going to state exactly what the proponents' goals are. And I think, Sarah, you can probably talk about that a little bit more. But obviously, their, their goal with number three here is to repeal Tabor and potentially come up with something different. Uh, The proponents have actually filed a number of ballot initiatives after number three that in some form or another repeal and replace Tabor with something new. Um, Some of them are partial, some of them are full. And I think these proponents are kind of waiting to see what happens with this one first and then decide what to do uh, next steps. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about how we got here. So with the ballot initiative process. This is a process, like you said, there are already hundreds of initiatives. Uh, Here in Colorado, I think I've seen some statistics that says that we have the most citizen initiatives of any state other than California and Oregon. So this is a process that we live with and that voters often see numerous initiatives, both at the state level and the city level, on their ballots just about every election cycle. And there is a process by which uh, the citizens have to go through in order to get something on the ballot. Do you mind walking us through that? 
Sure. And um, as Sarah mentioned, this, this happens every year, although we're in an odd year. So that's a little bit different than, than even years. On even years, uh, I'm sure if you've looked at your ballot, you uh, see a number of uh, initiatives that you're voting on. Um, but on odd years, there tend to be fewer of them. And that's because odd years are limited to ballot initiatives having to do with TABOR. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, the one we're talking about today is actually an odd year election measure. And so if it happens to go through the system, it will uh, be on the ballot this coming November. Interestingly, if this succeeds and the Tabor repeal happens, then that would open up ballot initiatives for any subject in uh, odd year elections as well. So It, it would. Uh, and just to, as Sarah alluded to, uh, talk a little bit about the process. Uh, these initiatives are first submitted to legislative council, which is essentially a, a, a branch of our General Assembly that looks over these ballot initiatives and oftentimes makes anything from little grammatical corrections to suggestions on the format of them. And then the proponents can decide whether to agree to those or ignore them completely. And then once that process goes through, it's at a hearing. Once once that hearing goes through that process, the proponents can submit it to the Secretary of State, and that really gets the ball rolling. Once once it's submitted to the Secretary of State, that's where these initiatives start to get some press if they are on some subject that, that has a lot of public interest. And also, uh, that's when multiple branches of government uh, here in Colorado start to take a role in that. And the reason I mention that is once it's submitted to the Secretary of State, it goes to, some, to a body called the Title Board. And the Title Board is made up of three people, although it's usually representatives of those three people, and that's the Legislative Council, which we've already talked about, the state AG's office, and the um, Secretary of State. And usually it's representatives of them um, that that comprise the title board. And uh, what happens there is the title board, as you can imagine, since it has the word title in it, sets the summary of the ballot initiative, also, also known as the title, guide, the title <laughs> uh, which can be very contentious, um, especially since that's usually the first thing voters see when they look at an initiative uh, if it comes on the ballot. And, and usually there's a fight over that. And then the title board also decides something called single subject, which is a little bit of a nebulous concept here in Colorado. It's supposed to, as you can imagine, uh, make sure that each of these ballot initiatives has one subject. That can be pretty difficult, deciding what is actually one subject. Um, But the goal, or there's kind of twin goals with that requirement, and that's to prevent proponents from putting two extremely unrelated measures into one just to try to get different groups in Colorado to vote for it because they like only one as opposed to another. And that is really something that we've had at the legislative level since statehood, right, David? I mean, we had we've, we have single subject rules for legislative bills as well, but it wasn't until 1994 that voters decided that the single subject rule would also apply to ballot initiatives. So it's actually relatively new with respect to citizen initiatives, but we've had this concept around for a long time. And if you look at the case law from the Colorado Supreme Court, um, and that's actually the next step, if, it, if after the title board, it, anybody can appeal this to the Colorado Supreme Court, and they end up making the decision on, on single subject and sometimes on the title as well. But the Colorado Supreme Court has essentially adopted the case law concerning 
your regular run-the-mill state bills regarding single subject and applied it to these citizen initiatives. So now let's get back to initiative, proposed initiative number three, the full repeal of Tabor, because this idea of single subject, that's what's been appealed up to the Colorado Supreme Court. And interestingly, uh, because Tabor was passed by voters in 1991, but the single subject rule wasn't enacted until 1994, that's actually become a little bit of an issue in the appeal. You're, you're exactly right, Sarah. So what, what's happened here is since Tabor was, as you said, passed before the single subject requirement, we're now looking at kind of piecing together what should happen considering that kind of odd timeline. And the Colorado Supreme Court has given hints over the years, although there has never been a ballot initiative that's simply to repeal Tabor before this one. Um, so this is this is a little bit of a new ground for, for the Colorado Supreme Court. To back up a little bit, so what happened that title board, as Sarah kind of alluded to, is the title board decided that uh, this initiative did not constitute a single subject, and they did so based off of reading the tea leaves from the Colorado Supreme Court's previous opinions, where they stated that even though there wasn't a single subject requirement when Tabor was passed, Tabor does, in fact, contain multiple subjects. And uh, that's not surprising in light of the way that uh, Sarah described Tabor as having kind of two main components. In other words, there might actually be multiple subjects there. And there's some pretty clear language in some of those previous cases that say Tabor constitutes multiple subjects, correct? Correct. <laughs> uh, so that's a little bit of an uphill battle for these proponents. Right. And, and the proponents are, I think, hoping that since... Those cases were decided by a completely different makeup of the Colorado Supreme Court that uh, all these new justices that have um, been appointed by um, Governor Hickenlooper over the last um, so many years will decide something different than what previous bodies of the of the Colorado Supreme Court decided. And, and, and they're really relying on a, a dissent from um, then-Justice Malarkey, who since became Chief Justice and is now no longer on the court, that hinted that really there should be a dichotomy between repealing something and an affirmative ballot measure that is trying to add something to the Constitution. In other words, the single subject may apply to or definitely does apply to a measure that is trying to add something to the Constitution, but it's really silent. Or if you look at the constitutional provision that establishes the single subject requirement, it's it's silent really as to a repeal. And so um, there, there's wiggle room there, and I think the proponents are hoping with a new makeup of the court and with a ballot initiative that goes directly to the heart of the issue, they'll get some clarity, and, and they're hoping in their favor. And these are no ordinary proponents, uh, I would say. So the individuals who can be proponents of a citizen initiative, it just has to be a Colorado voter, right, David? Right. But here we actually have uh, our proponents are Carol Hedges and Steve Briggs. And again, as I said, these are no ordinary proponents. Carol Hedges is the executive director of the Colorado Fiscal Institute, which is a left of center economic policy organization uh, that has a lot of credibility and has been around for a long time in the Colorado community. In addition, she has been very active. She worked in the Romer administration. She was one of the first people at the Bell Policy Center, which is another really important kind of left of center advocacy group here in Colorado. And she's been an expert really on Tabor for 
since its inception, she was the primary author of one of the Bell Policy's reports on Tabor after it had been enacted for 10 years. And she's been a critic, I would say, of Tabor. And so it's really no surprise that we see her as a proponent. But she's certainly someone that has a lot of cachet and brings a lot of expertise. And in addition, you know, maybe that would hold some sway, I think, with the Colorado Supreme Court. Likewise, the other proponent, Steve Briggs, is actually a retired judge. He served on the Colorado Court of Appeals in the 90s, and so he was on the court when Tabor was passed. Uh, He is a very well-respected lawyer in town. He went to the University of Colorado. He's received an alumni award. He served as president of the Colorado Bar Association and has been seen as a thought leader and thinker in these kind of economic spaces and circles and currently serves. He's also now doing... um, arbitration and mediation for JAG, which in the sort of lawyering world is obviously a very well-respected place. So again, not your ordinary proponents, and I think really feeds into, David, what you're suggesting, which is that the proponents are leaning and hoping on that because there's some wiggle room in the case law, uh, of course, the Colorado Supreme Court is bound by its previous decisions through a concept called stare decisis. But because so much of this language that's in the case law is either in dicta or is concerning a case that isn't exactly on point because we've never had a case that would seek to, we've never had a proposed initiative to just repeal Tabor sort of in whole cloth, that maybe the Supreme Court would come to a different decision that either aligns with the Justice Malarkey concurrence uh, or that cuts sort of another path through and maybe sort of threads a needle in in another way. Is there anything else on the specific arguments uh, that they're making? Uh, to be honest, the arguments aren't, aren't that complicated. This uh, for, for something that has potentially significant impact here in Colorado, the arguments are essentially that for the title board, which is defending its ruling, that they're just following what the Colorado Supreme Court has hinted in various cases. And as you mentioned, um, stare decisis prevents them from going away from that and and the proponents are are essentially saying well there's there's uh, a different train of thought out there and um maybe that train of thought should should work now and beyond that there's there's not a whole lot more to it so i was a little surprised because i you know i think you're right the straightforward argument that the title board is making uh on their appeal is that there is clear language in the colorado case law that says tabor is multiple subjects that we have a requirement in the Colorado Constitution that citizen initiatives contain a single subject. So a repeal of Tabor, which contains multiple t- subjects, cannot sort of ipso facto be a single subject. The proponents, you know, on the other hand, I was surprised to see that they didn't make a case that a repeal of Tabor, even if Tabor itself is multiple subjects, is a single subject. It's almost as if they conceded that this is multiple subjects, and said, but because the single subject requirement was passed in 94 after Tabor was enacted, it really shouldn't apply. Um, I was a little surprised to see them sort of leave that argument on the table. That doesn't mean that the Colorado Supreme Court can't take it back up, and we've certainly seen the court do that in other cases. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Colorado Supreme Court does take take that up or at least addresses it in an opinion, no matter which way they go. And, and to give a little perspective on this, oftentimes, especially with ballot initiatives that go up to the Supreme Court that have a large uh, statewide impact or at least a potential large state impact, the, the briefing is long. They tend to be you know 30-page briefs. But here, the title board's opening brief is 
barely 10 pages, and uh, their answer brief, and, and just so everybody knows how the briefing works here, it's a little bit different than, than your typical case. Uh, the proponents and uh, the title board or, or whoever ends up being the parties involved submit simultaneous opening briefs and answer briefs. So in other words, they come in at the same time. They're not answering to each other necessarily until that answer brief, but then each side gets this, gets the same time frame. And uh, it's just really interesting how, how little of substance are in these briefs compared to a lot of these other cases. And that's a great segue into uh, sort of timeline and kind of what happens next, because that compressed briefing schedule is specific to citizen initiatives, knowing that there is an election and that these matters need to be decided in advance of the election. I took a quick look at the Secretary of State's uh, calendar, and uh, interestingly, the last day to even file a ballot measure for the 2019 ballot, which is what this is seeking to be on was back in April. So anything that's not in the hopper already uh, is not going to be able to be considered. This obviously is, but signatures are going to be due on August 5th. So there's no requirement or deadline for when the court has to make its decision, but I would anticipate we're going to see a decision probably any day. No, I would agree. And I I did clerk on the Colorado Supreme Court, although I I will say it was a uh, I was there on an odd year, um, so there weren't as many ballot initiatives that year. But they've had the briefing here for a while now. As Sarah mentioned, we expect a, a decision at any point. And as she also mentioned, the deadline for 2019 has essentially passed to submit stuff to, to legislative council and to get the process going. So with that in mind, uh, most of those 100-plus initiatives that's been filed are for the the 2020 election, not only because of uh, the timing, but also since we've previously mentioned uh, the 2020 is open to everything, not just Tabor-related measures. So thinking about signatures, uh, the signature requirement is set at a percentage of the number of votes that were cast for all candidates in the Secretary of State race for sort of the previous four-year cycle. So we just came out of an election in 2018, which reset our signature requirement number uh, to 124,632. And we actually have a new, uh, for constitutional measures at least, we have a new requirement on signature gathering as well. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Amendment 71, which passed in 2016, and why that actually wasn't a requirement in 2018, but is going to be now in 2019? Uh, so, uh, as Sarah mentioned, this this amendment altered how the signature gathering process works. Uh, it was part of this Raise the Bar initiative that I'm, I'm sure many people heard ads about or at least read about um, in some respect. And it's a, an amendment that's actually um, going through the federal court system right now. Um, so it's a little bit in flux, um, although the requirements, and, and Sarah can talk about them here in a little bit, are still in effect because the federal courts have stayed those decisions um, at this point. Yeah, and I I think if you heard those ads, it was probably because there's like $5.7, $5.8 million that was spent in favor of that uh, initiative. It was uh, supported by the business community, obviously, in a really big way. There has been a, a lot of chatter, especially starting in, I think, around 2014 when we had the really controversial set of initiatives around the oil and gas industry, that it's just too easy to amend the Constitution in Colorado. The requirements to amend the Constitution were the same as the requirements to enact something in statute. And so why wouldn't you set something sort of permanent and in stone in the Constitution if you could? And so Amendment 71, one of the key, there were sort of two key provisions of that. Uh, The first was 
that for any initiative that was changing the Constitution or adding things to the Constitution, that it would require a 55% approval. So it wasn't just a simple majority. If you were going to repeal something from the Constitution, it would only require 50%. And again, while that was certainly consistent with the supporters of Amendment 71 wanting to make it more difficult to add things to the Constitution, maybe not as hard to take things out, I do recall specific conversations in 2016 around the repeal of Tabor and what this Amendment 71 would do if it had a 55% threshold Um, on the repeal side, too. So I think there was a bit of an accommodation in Amendment 71 to sort of bring everything back around together. But the the more controversial component of of that amendment was a requirement that the signatures that are gathered for a constitutional amendment not just be gathered sort of anywhere in the state, but that the signatures had to be gathered in all 35 senatorial districts, and that the number of of signatures in each of those districts be at least 2% of the total registered electors in each of those districts. And that was challenged in the district court as violating the one person, one vote rule and requirement and was actually struck down by the district court. And so that didn't apply in the 2018 elections, but the Tenth Circuit Uh, Now that issue is on appeal, David, as you said, and that the Tenth Circuit stayed that requirement. And so now that's going to be in effect if this moves forward, interestingly enough. And I will say, just as kind of bringing all that back around, the Bell Policy Center, where Carol Hedges had worked and had been been critical of Tabor, they actually opposed Amendment 71 as well. So there's sort of um, an interesting sort of mix of things that we're seeing come together from a political perspective on these citizen initiatives in this measure. So uh, I mentioned that signatures would be due on August 5th. Uh, Then, you know, the election is on November 5th. But here in Colorado, because we have a mail-in ballot, ballots go out on October 14th. So that just feels like that's like almost right around the corner. It's definitely coming up. And uh, as Sarah mentioned, uh, with Raise the Bar and those added signature requirements, it's had quite a bit of effect already in Colorado, even though it, its application to these upcoming elections is is still in question. Um, we've seen, at least with the last election cycle and a little bit for this ballot cycle as well, that uh, there are more statutory measures that would you know add or repeal something to Colorado statutes as opposed to the Constitution than constitutional measures. Um, obviously, the measure number three that we've been talking about today is a constitutional one. Um, but that, I think that's because of the signature requirement. And then on top of that, moving forward, uh, if, if that's going to be in effect, you have to get signature requirements from everywhere in the state. And it used to be that you would just go around Denver and, and the surrounding Front Range area and grab all your signatures. And, and this definitely places a lot more participation on other people in the state. And I know that they've been complaining about this citizen initiative process and how it's very Denver-centric because to propose a ballot initiative, the proponents have to be present for all of the steps along the process, whether that's uh, at these review and comment hearings with the Legislative Council or at Title Board. And if you live, say, in the San Luis Valley or in the Western Slope or, or way east on the Eastern Plains, it's hard to get there. Um, so I, I think this is, it, it's had the intended or unintended effect of, of increasing participation among all different people across the state. Well, thanks, David, for spending some time with me this morning talking about our ballot initiative process in Colorado and initiative number three, which would repeal Tabor, you know, altogether. And uh, we will be waiting every Monday anxiously to see what the Colorado Supreme Court decides on this one and then to see how the proponents move forward, no matter what the decision is. 
Thanks, Sarah. And once uh, we get a decision, it will be up on our ballot tracker and everybody can see it there. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.